I thought we'd start with a brief meditation. My teacher once told me not to talk to anyone who hasn't meditated. So. <laughs> Get you all settled down first. Okay. Close your eyes. <clears throat> and start with thoughts of goodwill. Wish for true happiness. Just tell yourself, may I find true happiness? You start with yourself because if you can't feel goodwill for yourself, it's hard to feel goodwill for other people. And think of where true happiness is found. It has to come from within. Things outside are always changing. And if your happiness is based on things that change, it's going to change into something other than happiness. And of course, when you look inside, you see there's a lot changing in the mind as well. So it's going to require some digging down. That's why meditation is a practice, something you do again and again and again. But the happiness doesn't wait till the end of the path. You find that you develop good resources inside all along the way. And they provide not... They provide happiness not only for you, but it also spills out to other people as well. When you have an inner sense of well-being, you're less likely to inflict your greed, anger, and delusion on others. So the wish for true happiness, as I said, is not selfish. It spreads out to others as well. So do that. Start dedicating thoughts of goodwill to other people around you. First start with people who are close to your heart, your family, your very close friends. May they find true happiness as well. And then let those thoughts spread out in ever-widening circles. The people you know, know well and like. People you don't know so well. people you're neutral about. And people you don't like. Remind yourself that if everyone in the world could find true happiness within, the world would be a much better place to live in. So don't let there be limitations on your goodwill. spread thoughts of goodwill to people you don't even know. And not just people, living beings of all kinds, east, west, north, south, above and below, out to infinity. May we all find true happiness in our lives. Now bring your thoughts back to the present moment. What do you have here right now? You've got the, the body sitting here breathing. You've got the mind that's thinking and aware. These are both your raw materials for digging down inside and the tools for digging. So bring them all together. Think about the breath and be alert to how the breath is going. Know when it's coming in, know when it's going out. And try to be sensitive to how comfortable it feels. Notice which sensations in the body are the ones that tell you that now the breath is coming in, now the breath is going out. And watch them all throughout each in-breath, all throughout each out. And if you notice that 
there's any sense of discomfort or tension or tightness or squeezing the body, allow it to relax. You may have a sense that the breath is too short or too long, you can adjust that as well. You can experiment with deeper breathing, more shallow breathing, faster or slower, heavier or lighter. There are all kinds of variations in the breath. So explore to see what feels best for the body right now. If you're feeling tired, you may want to breathe in a way that gives you more energy. If you're feeling tense, you may want to breathe in a way that makes you feel more relaxed. When you have a rhythm of breathing that feels good, stick with it as long as it feels good. If it starts not feeling good, you can change again. <clears throat> Try to keep on top of what your body needs in terms of breath energy from breath to breath to breath. The needs may change. The next step is to be aware of the whole body as you breathe in, the whole body as you breathe out. And a good way of working in that direction is to go through the body section by section. We don't have enough time at the moment to go through the whole body. Let's work on a few of the sections. Start around the navel. Just locate that part of the body in your awareness and watch it for a while as you breathe in, watch it as you breathe out. If you feel any sense of tension or tightness or blockage in that part of the body, allow it to relax. If you want, you can think of the breath energy coming in and out of the body right there. Working through any sense of tension or tightness and dissolving it away so that no tension builds up as you breathe in and you don't hold on to tension or tightness as you breathe out. Then move your attention up to the solar plexus and follow the same steps there. Locate that part of the body in your awareness. Watch it for a while as you breathe in and breathe out. And allow any sense of blockage or tension or constriction to dissolve away.
Now move your attention up to the middle of the chest and follow the same steps there. attention up to the base of the throat. now to the middle of the head. <clears throat> when you focus on the head, try to keep your focus not too heavy. <clears throat> I guess this is a part of the body that tends to be overworked. <clears throat> you got the breath energy coming in and, out, in and out of the head, not only through the nose, but also the eyes, the ears, in from the back of the neck, down from the top of the head. Filling the head with good breath energy and dissolving away any patterns of tension you may notice around the jaws or the face, the eyes, the ears. And if we had more time or you were meditating on your own, you could continue the survey of the body, down the back, out the legs, starting again at the back of the neck and going down the shoulders and out the arms to the tips of the fingers. So you'd cover the whole body. But for the time being, just allow your attention to return to any of the spots that we went through just now that you like the most. 
seem most congenial, the easiest to focus on, or the most comfortable. And allow your attention to settle right there. And then think of it spreading out from that spot to fill your whole body. So you're aware of the whole body breathing in, the whole body breathing out. You may find that your awareness has a tendency to shrink, so keep reminding yourself with each breath, whole body, whole body. Aside from that, there's nothing else you have to do. Just allow the breath to be comfortable and your awareness to be centered and broad.
before we leave meditation, <coughs> excuse me, think thoughts of goodwill once more. Think of whatever sense of peace or calm you felt during the meditation. And dedicate that to other people, other beings, either specific people you know are suffering right now, or to all living beings in all directions, east, west, north, south, above and below, out to infinity. May we all find peace and calm in our lives. Remind yourself as you leave meditation that you don't really have to leave. You can open your eyes, talk, but the breath is still there. You can still stay in touch with the breath as much as possible. And that can create the context for your experience here today. Before we start, can I have a show of hands? How many people did not get copies of the, the reading material? Oh my gosh. One, two, three. Crow don't have any to share at all. Okay, I got one. Okay. <laughs> maybe there's people in the back here who are three in a row that don't have. Maybe someone in the front can pass one back. Apologize for the mix-up in the, the naming of the course and the naming of the course material. Um, the course translates Itibata as basis of success, and the material translates it as basis of power, which shows you that Pali words have many translations. <laughs> Back in the late 70s and early 80s, we built a, 
a jetty at the monastery where I was staying in, in Thailand, a jetty, one of the spired monuments. <clears throat> and it was unusual in that you could go inside and there was a meditation room inside. And in the course of doing the blasting for the rock at the top of the hill where it was built, this very nice piece of rock came up, but actually it was much longer than this, a nice rectangle. And my teacher decided to have a Buddhist footprint carved in the top. And then they had a sculpture made of a naga to hold the foot footprint and to protect it. And on the side of the rock, he had them place the word Idibada, the four Idibadas. And in Thailand, everyone would know what that meant. It's, it's one of the more common teachings. Dharma talks will often refer to these four bases of power, or four bases of success, which is very different from here. When people asked this weekend, this week, you know, what are you going to teach this weekend? And I said the Idibadas, and they looked, what's this? Um, it's not one of the more popular teachings here in the West, and I thought it would be good for us to go over them today. Um, and also to reflect a little bit on why they're not popular. The first reason is that the, the word Iti, I-D-D-H-I, which was translated either as success or as power, <coughs> can be translated, is, is actually the name of psychic powers that can be gained through meditation. And a lot of us in the West have a very ambivalent attitude towards the psychic powers that can come from meditation. On the one hand, we're told that you better stay away from them because they're pretty dangerous. And on the other hand, they sound kind of cool. You know? And it's very tempting. I know someone who's an editor of a Buddhist magazine who said one time, if you actually believe that these things were, power, that these things were possible, he would drop his job as an editor and go and meditate in a cave. <laughs> the only thing that kept him going was that he didn't believe that could actually happen. Another reason is if you look at the actual list, and a shorthand list is, has four elements. There's desire, if effort or persistence, intentness, and discrimination, using the powers of discrimination in your mind. Now, most meditation instructions you get will tell you that three of those four things are things you should try to avoid. Try to avoid desire, try to avoid efforting, as they say it, and then try to avoid the discriminating mind. And yet here the Buddha is basing one of his sets of teachings, which he said in one place is equivalent to the Eightfold Path. He places these elements as essential to the path of practice. So I think it's important to reflect on the discrepancy here, why that happens. The concept of power, the concept of success, also has the implication that there's a goal to attain. And again, we're often told that you have to avoid attain a sort of goal-based approach to the meditation. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the problem simply of how you organize meditation retreats so people don't go crazy on the retreat. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> you get people in there for a set period of time, say for a week, and given the way Americans are, they will tend to, tend to compare, okay, I've given up this week, I could have gone to the Caribbean, I could have gone someplace else, I want to have something to show for my time. You know? <laughs> I at least should get stream entry by Tuesday. Yeah. And so you, what you do is you create a kind of pressure cooker environment, especially when people can't look at each other, can't smile, can't communicate. And so there were their own impersonal pressure cookers. And in order to release a lot of the pressure, one of the teachings that's useful in a retreat is for the teacher to say, okay, don't worry about the goals, don't worry about attaining, just learn to be with the present moment. And you get through the retreat okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and so they don't have people flipping out on them, you know. Which is fine for a retreat-based practice. But if you're thinking of a practice that's based for, on your entire life, that you're going to give your life to Dharma practice, you need to have goals. You need to learn how to approach them in an intelligent way, and in a mature way. You know, a weekend retreat cannot teach you how to have a mature attitude towards goals, but if you're thinking of a lifelong practice, this should be a, an important part of the practice, is how you relate to goals. You know, there really is such a thing as awakening. There really are. The, the possibility of overcoming defilement is a real possibility. But it's a large job. So you have to learn how to relate to large jobs, relate to long-term a long-term practice in a way that doesn't get you discouraged. So this, the Idibata may be an awkward teaching to have on a retreat, but it's an important teaching to have in day-to-day -day practice. 
because as they as many teachers in Asia will tell you that the, these four qualities of desire, persistence or effort, intentness and using your powers of discrimination are useful not only for dealing with the goals of meditation but also any kind of goal, any kind of um, goal that you set for yourself. When it's translated as basis of success, a typical teaching in Thailand will be if you want to complete your education, these are four good qualities to have in mind. If you want to complete any task, these are four good qualities. In fact, the, the, the word in Thai for gaining a diploma is to succeed in your education. Samrat Gan And so the idea that Lady Body would apply to any student going, going through an education is a common idea over there. So that's one thing we should think about as we contemplate why the Idibadas have never been emphasized in the West. Second, I think, has to do with an attitude towards um, what the meditation is all about. We'll be going over the idea today that one of the purest or one of the most deep forms of pleasure is when you can have reality fit with your desires. And there are two extreme ways of, of approaching that issue. And many times we tend to fall into either of the extremes. One extreme, which I could call the Barney the Dinosaur extreme, is that you decide, just through the force of your will, the force of wishing, you want things to change. Yeah. Uh, many people like to approach life with the attitude that if they will something strong enough, if they are persistent enough in their willing, that reality is plastic enough that it will change in line with their will. And as I said, you can associate this from anything from Barney the Dinosaur to Adolf Hitler. It's that one extreme on the, on the, uh, on the spectrum. The other extreme is that you have to tame your desires so that they fit in with things as they already are. In other words, abnegate your, your desires. And you will find in their abnegation that what little desire you have left fits in with reality and everything is perfectly fine. This type of thinking, you can, you can trace back to, part of it goes back to the period of the Romantics. Um, the idea being that by taming your will and, and, and overcoming your sense of your separate self, which is often um, equated with the will, if you can overcome your will, then you can get in touch with a larger reality, which is a friendly reality and one which having a sense of oneness is something that is the goal of the practice. <clears throat> now the Romantics themselves were divided on exactly what was involved, <clears throat> but one school of thought was that religious practice is a return to your innate nature. And what, you, what you really are, what you were before you were conditioned by society. And so that the meditation practice would be a process of deconditioning your social conditioning. Part of that would be the deconditioning of your will. The element of will is what keeps you separate from things outside. Um, this underlying belief is something I think that accounts for the, the popularity of the idea of Buddha nature in the West. That if we're in, in the course of practice, we're getting back to our true nature, which is a Buddha nature, which is the enlightened nature that we return to in the course of the practice. <clears throat> now, whatever Buddha nature meant in Asia, it has certainly picked up that notion, that romantic notion, that we're returning to a sort of a preconditioned state that is our true self or our true, be, true mode of being. <clears throat> if you take that approach to the practice, then it's one in which you're undoing any kind of effort and just allowing yourself to get back to your innate nature. In which case, the, the development of the basis of power would seem to be antithetical to the practice. Now, as always in Buddhism, where there are two extremes, you realize the Buddhist approach is to take the middle way. And the middle way here is I found many parallels with the Buddhist approach to practice to um, the psychology that psychologists discovered it is involved in mastering a skill. And this, the idea of skill is in a very central concept to Buddhism. In fact, the very first reading we have, you might, might want to open to that, points to this. <clears throat> I'll give you a little context here. This particular passage is in a whole series of suttas which discuss issues that the Buddha does not talk about. When he's asked, you know, is the world eternal or not eternal, he doesn't answer. If he asks, is it infinite or, or finite, he doesn't answer. 
Is the body the same thing as the life's force or is they separate things? He doesn't answer that. After awakening, does, after the death of the awakened person, does the, the awakened person still exist and not exist? Both, neither. He doesn't answer those questions. And so as part of a whole series of questions that he doesn't answer, here's this sutta about one of his lay students, um, Wajya Mahita. I'll read it to you for those of you who don't have the, the sheet. Then Wajya Mahita, went to the householder, went to where the wanderers of other persuasions were staying. On arrival, he greeted them courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat to one side. As he was sitting there, the wanderers said to him, Is it true, householder, that the contemplative Gautama, that's the Buddha, criticizes all asceticism, that he categorically denounces and disparages all ascetics who live the rough life? And Vajir replies, No, Venerable Sirs, the Blessed One does not criticize all asceticism, does not categorically denounce or disparage all ascetics who live the rough life. He criticizes what should be criticized should be criticized and praises what should be praised. Criticizing what should be criticized, praising what should be praised, the Blessed One is one who speaks making distinctions, not one who speaks categorically on this matter. When this was said, one of the wanderers said to him, Now wait a minute, householder. The contemplative Gotama whom you praise is a nihilist, one who doesn't declare anything. In the whole series of suttas, you begin to get that impression with questions that he doesn't answer. And this is Vajir's response. I tell you, Venerable Sirs, that the Blessed One righteously declares that this is skillful. He declares that this is unskillful. Declaring that this is skillful and this is unskillful, he is one who has declared a teaching. He is not a nihilist, one who doesn't declare anything. So here Vajir is taking as the central teaching of the Buddha the distinction between what's skillful and unskillful. The Pali word here is gusala, which is sometimes tra translated as wholesome. And... Kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A, sometimes translated as wholesome. And one of the difficulties in translating Pali is that you don't have native Pali speakers that you can go up and ask, you know, what does this word mean? A lot of it, especially in the Buddhist teachings, is fairly abstract. And so what you have to do is, is go through the canon and see sort of either stories or parables or day, sort of day-to-day -day incidents which give you a sense of how the word is used in normal context. And in the case of Gusala, the prime context in that sort is a story about a monk who was practicing too hard. And he was, um, the, it doesn't say so in the Pali Canon, but it says it in the, in the commentaries. They say that he had been so delicately brought up that he had hair on the soles of his feet. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the commentary also tells you that the word of this gets around, you know. Somebody has hair on the soles of their feet. It's not, it's not kept secret very long. And the king wanted to see this. This was quite something. This is pretty rare. And so the word comes out that the young man is invited to the king's palace. So the parents talk to him. And they say, now, before you go to the king's palace, the king wants to see the bottom of your feet. Now, <clears throat> there are polite and impolite ways of showing him the bottom of your feet. They say, don't just stick out your feet like this in front of you. Say, sit, sit in, a, in a full lotus position, and the king can kind of glance at your lap and not be too obvious about staring at your strange feet here. And so, so the guy goes, and he does as he's told. And in the meantime, while he's there, he hears a little bit of the Dharma and decides that he wants to be a monk. And so he goes out to be a monk. That's, that's in the commentary. You, you know the commentaries. They like to have funny stories. The story that's told in the canon is you've got this young monk who's very, very delicately brought up in his walking meditation. He walks so much on his path that his feet start bleeding. There's blood all over the path, and he's beginning to get discouraged. He says, here, I've been trying so hard, and I'm not getting awakening. So the Buddha hears about this, and, or no, sees what's happening, reads his mind, and so levitates from where he is and comes right down in front of the young man, as the young man is thinking, maybe I should disrobe. And... That would be a very effective teaching. You're sitting there thinking of disrobing. <laughs> and your teacher comes and lands right in front of you. And so the Buddha asks him, you know, when you were a layperson, he said, were you gusala at playing the lute? Now he's not asking him, did you play wholesome songs on your lute? He's saying, were you skilled at playing the lute? And the young man says, yes. He says, um, do you remember that when you, tight, when you tightened the string on the lute? And when they were too tight, what was it like? He said, well, you couldn't play it. Sometimes the string would snap. And if it was too loose... He said, well, in that case, then you couldn't play anything at all. The string wouldn't make a sound. The string would have to be tuned just right. And then once you had your first string tuned just right, you tuned the other strings of the lute to that first string. And that way you could play the lute pro properly, and the song would sound good. 
is that in the same way, when you're practicing meditation, you tune your string of your effort first to what you're capable of. And then once you've tuned that, then you tune the other qualities that are needed in the practice to that basic, to that basic level of tuning. And then, you can, then you can, your practice will lead to the results that you want. And as a result of this, the young man practiced. His, his effort was in tune, and as a result, he became an arahant. The point here being, related to here, is that the word gusala is primarily means skillful. And it's important to think about what this means. The idea that skills are possible, or that skills are important, means several things. One, it means that there is there are patterns in life. There's patterns of cause and effect that you can learn about in life. If the world were totally chaotic, there would be no purpose in spending time to master a skill, because what you had mastered wouldn't be necessarily useful further down the line. It does, however, on the other hand, mean that Given, even though there are patterns of cause and effect, they're not totally deterministic. If things were deterministic, you wouldn't have to work at making a skill. You'd either have it or you wouldn't. But the fact that you, skills are possible and that skills can be mastered shows that you know, life has patterns but, and the patterns can be affected by the way you would pay attention to what you're doing. Now you think, you know, what's involved in learning a skill? We'll be going in more detail on this particular topic later on in the day. By the way, let me stop just for a minute and give you sort of an overview of what the day is going to be like. The first part of the day, we'll be going over the material in the reading, reading passages, um, talking about skillfulness, talking about issues of how the idibadas or the basis of power relate to developing a skill. Then the next section, which will probably come right after lunch and you're probably going to be sleepy, I'll be telling you some stories about psychic powers, just to keep you awake. <laughs> Third part is to go into some findings that psychologists have had about developing skills, what exactly is, is needed in developing skills. There's a, this is based not on a, uh, not a scientific document, but on a New Yorker article that appeared a couple years ago, um, where they had interviewed and studied various people who were skillful. There was a surgeon named Charlie Wilson who used to be a brain surgeon at UCSF. Wayne Gretzky, Yo-Yo Ma, Michael, Michael Jordan. And to see what qualities these people who had mastered skills, what qualities they all had in common. And it turns out that the qualities they had in common were the Edibatas, the four bases of success. And so I think it's interesting to reflect on what psychologists have discovered in, in this kind of study and how they throw some extra light on the Edibadas and the role they play in the practice. And then finally, we'll talk, go back into the issue of meditation, specifically on how to apply the approach of skillfulness to the practice of meditation. So that's, that's the way the day is going to be marked out. The issue of skillfulness, in addition to implying that there's a cause and effect pattern to life, also implies that there are some causes that are preferable to others, some effects that are preferable to others. If it didn't matter what you were doing, if it didn't matter whether you could play the piano well or play the piano poorly, no one would bother to put all that effort into playing it well. But the fact that you know, a well-played piano sounds a lot better than a poorly played one sound, you know, implies that there are some results are preferable to others. And in fact, it's this combination that there's desirable and undesirable results, and then there's a pattern of cause and effect, this provides the framework for the Four Noble Truths, which, as we all know, is kind of the major structure of the Buddhist teachings. You have undesirable effect, which is suffering. You have unskillful cause, which causes that effect, which is craving and ignorance. You have the desirable effect, which is the end of suffering, and then the skillful causes, which is the Eightfold Path that takes you there. So implicit in the, in the teachings on the Four Noble Truths is this distinction between skillful and unskillful. It may sound like a, a dualistic teaching, but if you're going in for brain surgery, you want to have, <laughs> you want to have a dualistic surgeon. You know? <laughs> so it's not dualism for the sake of dualism. It's just a very realistic approach to life, that there is happiness is better than suffering, and long-term happiness is better than short-term happiness, which is what the Buddha says. That, that Understanding there is the basis for all discernment and wisdom. Look at passage two here. <clears throat> so this is the way leading to discernment. Another way to translate discernment would be wisdom. When visiting a priest or contemplative to ask, what is skillful, venerable sir? 
What is unskillful? What is blameworthy? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What, when I do it, and this is, this is the big question right here, what, when I do it, will be for my long-term harm and suffering? Or what, when I do it, will be for my long-term welfare and happiness? Okay, those last two questions have some important implications. One is you realize that your happiness or suffering depend on your actions. Again, things are not totally determined by outside factors. What you do has an important impact. Secondly, the kind of happiness you want is something that is long-term. Something that's not going to change on you. Now, ideally, long-term could would even be better if it were totally timeless. In fact, that's what one of the Buddha's discoveries on it in the night of his awakening was that there, there is a welfare and happiness which is totally independent of time, which is what we're working towards. But the way to get there is to work on being more and more sensitive to what you do that creates long-term happiness. This is what the, what the Eightfold Path is all about. Are there any questions on what we've covered so far? Yes. Okay. In Pali? Okay, in Pali. Okay. Um, the first one is desire. But it's, this, this is just a shorthand definition because there's actually a long formula which we'll be going over in the, in the material. But for just shorthand purposes, desire, the word chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A, Second one, the Pali word is vridhya, V-I-R-I-Y-A, which can be translated as persistence, effort, or energy. The third one is citta, C-I-T-T-A. And that, that, of the four, it's the most difficult to translate because normally the word citta means mind. But it has other meanings as well. In this case, it means intentness. It can also mean will, acts of will. And the fourth one, translated as discrimination or analysis, is vimangsa, V-I-M-A-M-S-A. And the second M has a dot over it, which is, means it's translated, it's pronounced like an N-G, it's vimangsa. So those briefly are the four bases for power. But we'll go into the into the formula a bit further on. Can you spell the last one again? V I M A M S A. And the second M has a dot over the top. And the power for V I R I Y A. Vimangsa? V-I-M-A-M-S-A. And as I said, there's a dot over the second M, so it's pronounced like an N-G. Mm-hmm. Okay. You might want to keep those four in mind as, and think about how they would apply to any skill that you have developed or any task you set yourself. I mean, it's pretty simple. Learning how to cook. One, you want to eat. Two, okay. So that's desire right there. Two, you want to eat nice. Okay. So you're going to work a little bit harder than normal on it. So you make an effort, you go out and you get the food and you look at the look at the recipe. And the third one is you pay careful attention to what you're doing so you don't burn the food while you're fixing it. You don't go against the recipe. And then when you're done, you taste it and you use your wimangsa to decide whether you like it or not. <clears throat> If you want to be a good cook, then you would take that knowledge and you apply it the next time. You might decide either that the recipe was not a good recipe, so you want to find a better one, or that you screwed up somehow, or that you basically like the recipe, but you have an idea how you can improve it. In which case, you, it sort of goes through the cycle again. You've had your, you've, you've used your powers of discrimination, and you've begun to improvise. So that ultimately you become your own cook and then you can throw away the cookbook and work on your improvisation. And one of the whole 
say, one of the assumptions of wanting to develop a, school, a skill. You've probably heard the concept that you know, all things are possible for beginner's mind, and very few things are possible in the expert's mind. The, pro- the process of, of developing a school half believes that and half doesn't. It recognizes the fact that there is a room for improvisation, but there's also, you know, there's also a word to be said for experience. Learning from, learning from your past mistakes, learning from your past successes. And it's learning to combine those two that you really develop a skill and it becomes your own. So that's a little bit of a preview. Any other questions before we go on to the next? Yes. And it can be anything from you know, just causing yourself out and out suffering to putting a lot of energy into getting a very short-term happiness that will turn on you and you're going to regret later. I mean, this is what wisdom comes down to, realizing that there are gradations in your happiness. And some, some forms of happiness are more worth pursuing than others. Um, remember when I first brought up this topic in a study group I had down in... Um, I didn't mean to dump on Southern California... Um, because they feed me. Um, but someone objected. They said, How, who has the right to tell me that my pursuit of happiness is wrong? You know? <laughs> I like my happiness. You know? Nobody has any right to tell me any different. Um, and the idea of different strokes for different folks you know, would be okay if the way you perceive happiness or way you pursue happiness didn't have consequences. You know, some forms of pr- pursuit of happiness you know, create a lot of problems along, down the road. Others create no problems. So if it were simply a question of you know, whether you like vanilla or chocolate, that's not an issue. But if it's an issue, I mean, does your happiness require that you bomb a city or does it have, you know, okay, then you've got a problem with your happiness. Yes? When you talk about short-term and long-term, I mean, mm-hmm. can you also call those two things conditional happiness and unconditional happiness? Well, with short-term and long-term, they're actually both the process of the Buddha's path is to learn how to use the process of conditioning so eventually you get to the unconditioned. And that's where it's all aimed, ultimately. In the beginning, though, it's just learning how to see the difference between conditional short-term and conditional long-term happiness. Yes? Uh, say, like, no chocolate and nothing real controversial about that, but some people would dig deeper and say, well, that chocolate is grown in, in, in Africa, yeah. yeah. Well, if you, if you feel, un- start thinking about the implications of your choice, yeah. You might decide, well, I don't want to, do, I don't want to eat chocolate. I'll go for it. Well, but then, you know, what, what, how is vanilla raised? You know? <laughs> Everything has, you know, has a sort of dirty little secrets. Yeah, and this is the part of being interdependent. I've never understood why people say that being feeling interconnected is a good thing. Someone did it. Someone traced a. Well, I think I think it was a gapped sweatshirt one time, and it starts in you know you know cotton in Kazakhstan, and then it gets woven in Iran. And there's one of the axes of evil right there. And then you go goes over to Canada. It goes over to South Korea, which is getting close to another axis of evil. <laughs> before it's made into a sweatshirt, and then it's shipped to Kentucky where wages are low, and then finally gets to your Gap store. And so just about anything you buy has these implications. So you might decide in terms of chocolate that you like chocolate, well, you buy you know, chocolate from you know, the producers that treat the workers right, as opposed to what's happening in West Africa. But yeah, I mean, ultimately what you want, and this is, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha has monks reflect on their requisites every day. We're required before we use the robe to think about why we're using the robe. Is it a proper motivation? And if you, you know, if you, and it's, this applies not only to clothing but also to food, shelter, and medicine. Think about that. Why are you using these things? Well, one, because you're born with a body that has this big gaping hole. You know, hunger, needs of various kinds. It needs to be protected from the hot and cold. It needs to be filled with food. 
needs shelter. From time to time, we'll need medicine. And so as we're born into this world, we're not born with birth rights, we're born with birth needs more than anything else. And so our survival depends on you know, fulfilling those needs, which either our parents do for us when we're young or else then we start taking over the, the choices as we grow up. And when you start reflecting on where these things come from, there's nothing that does not involve somebody's suffering. And so in which case, you the, the obvious choice ultimately is, what can I do to get out of this cycle? And it turns out you can't just drop out. You've got to learn how to use the processes of causality to get to an unconditioned happiness. So you want to use them as wisely and as you know, minimizing the amount of suffering you're causing for yourself and other people. But realizing that causality always involves suffering of some kind. And the question is how you use your pursuit of happiness, working first for longer, longer and longer term conditional happiness until finally you get to a happiness that's unconditioned. Okay, then you're free. Then, as, I, as the Buddha says, that from that point on, you live without debt. You're totally outside. And I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned in this group, but several years back, I made the point that one of the very first teachings they give to young novice monks and nuns, this goes way back from early, early centuries in the Buddhist tradition, was a series of questions. What is one? What is two? What is three? What is four, five, and on up to ten? And some of the answers are pretty obvious. You know, what is four? The four noble truths. What is five? The five khandhas. What is six? The six sense spheres. What is seven? The seven factors of awakening. Eight is the eightfold path. The interesting question is, what is one? And the answer is, all beings subsist on food. That's the initial teaching on causality and the initial teaching on interdependence. There's eating. For one thing, it's, it's easy for kids to comprehend. Now, that's their direct experience with, you know, Conditionality. You depend on food. Secondly, the more you think about it, this, our, you know, our, inter- our interdependent relationships are not, are not totally pure. They leave their mark. And there are some traditions that will compare causality to light reflecting off of mirrors. You know, the old Hua Yen teaching of you know, the mirrors surrounding the, the lamp and the Buddha image. And causality is just the light reflected off the mirrors. Now, light reflected off mirrors doesn't do any harm to the mirrors except maybe on a molecular level, which I don't know about, but normally it doesn't. But eating obviously harms one, ha- one part of the equation. And many times it's b- bad for both. So it's important to think that in this quest for skillfulness, you know, the quest for long-term welfare and happiness is a really serious issue. What are you going to do so you're not causing a lot of suffering for yourself and other people? In fact, the Buddha said this quest for long-term welfare and happiness ultimately will also bring you to compassion. Because you think about your, your, you desire a dependable happiness. And think about it. Everybody else in this room, everybody else in the world depends, you know, desires a dependable happiness. And that can spark two responses. One is a sense of empathy. We're all in this together. And then secondly, if you realize that if your, your welfare and happiness depends on somebody else's suffering, one, it's not fair. Two, it's not going to last very long. Because nobody's just going to sit around idly and let you abuse them. They're going to work against what your happiness is. So as you reflect on long-term welfare and happiness, it has to include that welfare and happiness of the people around you. Okay.